Tell us about the time you first met Clark. Oh, I was uh, barely 14 years old, I think, in, in 1987. I was standing in an alley, uh, and I was smoking a joint, and I just remember this car kind of roaring down the alley towards us. This old kind of 1969 Camaro or Firebird roars up, and it's spitting up gravel and, and rocks and dust, and it stops right in front of me, and I was kind of frozen there. The man who walked up to me at that moment was a guy by the name of Clark Martell. Um, he had a shaved head kind of walked across the beam of headlights over to me and he pulled the joint from my mouth and he looked me in the eyes and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. I'll never forget that. What he said next was important because he asked me what my name was and I thought he was going to make fun of it like everybody else did and he didn't. He recognized it was Italian and he started to tell me that I should be proud of that name that there were people who wanted to tarnish that pride, uh, that European heritage uh, that I had come from. He was a, a brilliant, like, propagandist, like a marketer. I think he knew, just like Goebbels, just like all, like, you know, people in the Nazi party knew, extremists know, that a movement cannot exist without the participation of youth. It was just this dead-end alley near the intersection of, of, believe it or not, two streets called Union and Division, and that was the alley where I was recruited. In the last episode, we heard about the surprising diversity of Chicago's early skinheads and how neo-Nazis ruined the scene. Have you heard about this guy, uh, Martel? He's a, a racist, and he is calling himself a skinhead. A man named Clark Martell showed up, preaching white power. The scene split, and battle lines were drawn. It's not just this guy is a prick. This guy is going to also be very bad for you, because you're going to go to jail. He's going to talk you into doing things you might not even want to do. To anti-racist skinheads, Clark was a dangerous lunatic. But to the broken teenagers who came under his spell, Clark was a savior. In this episode... We hear from those people. Just when the KKK was fading, Clark Martell found a way to make the white supremacist movement seem cool to a new young generation. By the time Christian Picciolini was recruited in 1987, Clark had made a name for himself. A group at the forefront of monitoring hate crimes in the U.S. published a report about racist skinheads. At the very top of it was Clark and his crew, Cash, the Chicago-area skinheads. To many, Clark Martell is the patient zero of America's organized neo-Nazi skinhead movement, the Johnny Appleseed who came to Chicago to spread hate. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Odette Youssef, and this is Motive. Union and Division. Clark Martell is a mysterious figure. I've talked to a lot of people who knew him, and sometimes it just feels like Clark was a Nazi alien from outer space who landed in Chicago. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know his, his background, how he became Clark Martell, the skinhead. <laughs> but he was older, and I remember thinking, that God, this guy is 
much older. He was older than all of us, too. I see someone like Clark Bartell as an infiltrator, recruiting disaffected youth from the punk rock scene. Did he become a skinhead because he saw it as an opportunity or because he believed in it? That, I don't know. Either way, it worked. He felt like he could convince people that his ideas were correct if he just talked to them long enough. He was really, like, earnest about it. He did inspire the youth to be part of what had been an adult kind of fringe movement at the time. When I looked through the stacks of papers that make up Clark Martell's criminal file, a small detail jumped out. It's something he told a probation officer in an interview in 1991. He told the officer that as a child growing up in Billings, Montana, he read Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. It was a significant turning point for him. He said it felt like Hitler had, quote, read his mind even before he was born. Reading the book made Clark decide to move to Chicago because there, quote, he heard he could join the Nazi party. He wasn't wrong. I pledge allegiance to Adolf Hitler. I pledge allegiance to Adolf Hitler. The immortal leader of our race. The immortal leader of our race. A year or two after Clark moved to Chicago, Hollywood parodied Illinois Nazis in the Blues Brothers. Hey, what's going on? Ah, those bums won their court case, so they're marching today. What bums? The fucking Nazi party. (sighs) Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. In the movie, they come off as a bunch of ridiculous grown men with a penchant for wearing costumes. But the scene was rooted in a truth, which was Nazis in Illinois were real, and they'd been here a long time. By the early 70s, at least two Nazi groups had meeting spaces in or near Chicago. One openly flew a giant Nazi flag outside its headquarters on a major street. They often provoked the public. In 1977, they announced they'd march in Skokie, an Illinois suburb that was home to thousands of Holocaust survivors. It made national news. The National Socialist Party members have made Skokie a target. They want to hold demonstrations there and pass out some of their abundant anti-Jew, anti-Black literature. But the Nazis mostly stuck to a neighborhood on Chicago's southwest side called Marquette Park. You'd see people shopping. You know, I'd run into Nazis that I opposed, you know, out in the street in a market. And we just nodded each other because you don't want to have a brawl over the bananas. Chip Berlay was an investigative journalist and an anti-racist activist. He moved to Chicago in the 70s to help Marquette Park peacefully integrate. Well, it was overwhelmingly white working class and union member Catholics and basically had held the line, quote unquote, against the blacks moving in for a number of years. Marquette Park was then seen as the last bastion for white rule in the southwest side of Chicago. There was violence and attacks and firebombings and... You know, a few blocks north of our house, a black family bought a house and they were firebombed. The fight to integrate housing in Marquette Park took decades, and it began long before Chip arrived there. In the summer of 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. led a march for open housing in Marquette Park. The demonstrators were swarmed by an angry white mob that hurled bottles and rocks. King was struck in the head by one of those rocks. 
Later, he reflected on it. Well, this is a terrible thing. I've been in many demonstrations all across the South, but I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. Chip Burley says he finally came to understand what drove that hate after he moved to Marquette Park in the 70s. It was fear, a fear that letting blacks in would drive down home values. For his working-class neighbors, home values were the key to a stable retirement. Residents of Marquette Park weren't necessarily Nazis, but the Nazis realized this was a neighborhood that might be receptive to their message. The hardest thing it took me to figure out was that it wasn't the Nazis doing the violence. The Nazis would stage a demonstration that represented what they thought white people should be doing, and then at night, white high school boys would go out and do the violence. So the Nazis just were sort of instigators. They were totally instigators, and they knew who they were instigating. All this was still going on in the late 70s when Clark Martell up and moved from Billings, Montana to Illinois, where he heard he could be a Nazi. Sure enough, he showed up in Marquette Park. That's where Chip Berlay met him. Clark was around 20 years old. I remember once being out on a field with a pro and anti-Nazi demonstration, and he came up to me, he did a karate kick up to my nose and stopped about an inch away, and then stood up and smiled and just nodded and winked at me. Chip would see Clark in the neighborhood, walking up to boys playing basketball and talking to them. He saw Clark at Nazi rallies with other young people. It was clear that this outsider had come to Chicago with a plan. All good organizers have an ability to understand where their recruitment pool is and speak to it in a profound and thoughtful way. Clark knew how to play his role very well, so he was an organizer. This is Odette. Hello. Hey, can you hear me, Christina? I can. Can you hear me? I can. And um, just to let you know, I'm, I'm recording. Sure. One of the young people Clark recruited was Chrissy. Clark wasn't a skinhead. He became a skinhead like overnight for a minute. And then... Before going too far into Chrissy's story, I just want to note, in this episode, you'll be hearing from people that Clark recruited. Except for Christian, they're all women. That's unusual. Most of the cash crew were guys. But for some reason, the only ones who would allow us to record interviews were women. Also, racist skinheads were like the broader white supremacy movement. Women were generally excluded. Clark's inclusion of them was not the norm. He built me up emotionally. He built me up saying that I was a woman to be proud of myself. And a woman's a great thing that God made. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) you know? Chrissy says her childhood in a Chicago suburb was marked by violence from a young age. She has this one memory of her mom. When I was in diapers, I remember she caught my stepfather wrist wide open with a butcher knife. And you know how when there's violence like that and there's a child just right there standing, that was me. And even after she went to live with her dad and stepmother, the violence continued. There was a lot of hitting, physical abuse. So I, I was like made like mean. 
I'm still working the mean out of me. At 17, Chrissy ran away from home and ended up in the city. She found the punk rock scene. That's where she met Clark. Clark was in his mid-20s, around eight years older than Chrissy. But any questions Chrissy may have had about why he was hanging out with teenagers faded away the night she brought Clark and their other racist skinhead friends to a party. It was at the home of an anti-racist skin. Chrissy knew her Nazi friends wouldn't be welcome there. But still, she brought them. And sure enough, there was a fight. After that happened, everybody went running out of the apartment. And I was somehow the last to get out. And they were dragging me up the stairs. And if they got me into the apartment, I definitely would have been killed. And Clark came. I'll never forget it to this day. Him coming up them stairs and rescuing me. And then Clark protecting me because nobody protected me. I was hurt my whole life by people who were supposed to protect me. After that, Chrissy stuck with Clark. It seemed a lot of people who met Clark fell under his spell. It was like Clark swept us away with his strength, his words, his proof of things. Like he would prove it to us, you know? He always had this very kind of concentrated look. He looks you directly in your eyes, and he has those sort of very, like, light, ice-colored blue eyes. Kind of these penetrating, like, blue granite eyes, and he was very charismatic. Clark can brainwash you. He was Charles Manson. Oh, and he loved Charles Manson. He sure did. Charles Manson was this kind of, like, brilliant, twisted guy that could make people do whatever he wanted them to do. Clark was very much like that. He was really smart, and we were young, and we were looking, I don't know, for something, maybe, like kids do. To Chrissy, Clark's encouragement and approval were everything. She never got that at home. And with Clark, there was this perverse feedback loop. Whenever they did something especially reckless, it seemed to win more praise. Like that fight where Chrissy brought the cash crew into hostile territory at an anti-racist apartment. She knew it was a bad idea, but she did it anyway. For Clark, for Clark, it was for Clark. He would incite fights. And then because we had a backup, Clark were in a fight. You understand? And if you remember that fight outside the Wellington Avenue church from the last episode, cash was vastly outnumbered by anti-racist skins. There was no question they had lost, badly. But Chrissy remembers feeling like a hero. Clark would say, you see, few numbers sticking together is the key, you know what I mean? And like he would tell us that the reason we won is because there was more power than us, because we had each other's backs. To this day, I can revisit that feeling emotionally walking down the street. In cash, Chrissy had found a family. There was another thing Clark did for her. He kept her clean. In theory, at least, neo-Nazi skinheads were supposed to stay off hard drugs. Clark enforced that with cash. Chrissy is certain that's the only thing that saved her from spiraling into addiction. It seems that Clark was always looking for Chrissy's, for angry teenagers who were searching for family on the streets because things were bad at home. He was always recruiting. 
The way that I actually met Clark was through a zine. And I had written something in there about being a skinhead. I don't know if I had my phone number in there or what, but he called my house out of the blue one day. Amy Strickland was another rebellious girl from a Chicago suburb. We started talking and he seemed like a really reasonable person. And I'd heard all of the crazy things about him, you know, from some of my skinhead friends that used to hang out with him or just people that had known him. Amy had been the popular, long, blonde-haired girl in high school. But seemingly overnight, she turned into an angry, angsty high school dropout with a double green mohawk. It may have been hormones, but now she thinks it may also have been anxiety and depression. And I think that when I encountered this punk scene on the north side, it just really appealed to me. You know, there was an attitude of fuck authority and fuck being a cookie cutter person. Amy's rebelliousness took her deeper and deeper. She shaved off her mohawk, got her bomber jacket and boots, and then she went looking for the Nazis. It just seemed like the most, I don't know, if I look back, I would say it seemed like the most extreme thing I could do. Amy's mom kicked her out of the house. And I went to stay with a friend of mine, and I had invited Clark over to hang out. Then the cash skinheads came over every day, and they never left, and we couldn't get rid of them, and we were, like, afraid of them, (laughs) literally. They'd come over with beer, and everybody would laugh and hang out. But unlike Chrissy, Amy says she didn't feel like cash was family at all. She also felt uneasy about some of the other people that Clark introduced her to. Clark was really close with a bunch of people who were affiliated with Aryan Nations and then the KKK, I felt incredibly uncomfortable and fearful of these people because they just seemed really crazy to me. They were really, like, zealous about talking about racism, and they were really, like, just frightening people. Clark was the one who dealt with them people, man, because we thought they were all weirdos. Chrissy didn't see much connection between Cash and those older racists, but they had been Clark's mentors during his early Chicago years in Marquette Park. He understood that those old guys and his young recruits shared the same belief system. This was a new thing, bringing teenagers into the movement, and it came at a time when white supremacist groups in Illinois were intentionally coordinating with each other. Journalist Chip Burleigh wrote about it in a local Chicago paper. He called it the, quote, white racist alliance. In the summer of 86, they planned what they called the Klan Crosstown Classic, all spelled with K's. Two events meant to unify white supremacists across the city of Chicago. First, a white power rally in Marquette Park on the south side, and the next day an anti-gay demonstration on the north side. Chrissy said when the Klan organized something, Cash was there. Chrissy and other young Cash members may not have understood it, but Clark was folding them into the broader movement. When Clark would hook up with him, Clark was getting from them being famous. And then everybody knew his name. And then that really was a big deal. 
So it was filling his head up. But other dummies were being invited over there and given all this respect. So we were like, oh, we're stars. <laughs> and I remember that, you know, like, we're like, wow, we must be badasses. Clark didn't just connect his young group of racist skinheads to older traditions of white supremacy in America. He actually saw them as connected to Nazis, like World War II German Nazis. In the Nazi Bible, Mein Kampf, Hitler has nothing but good to say of his friend Rudolf Hess. He even appointed him deputy During World War II, Rudolf Hess was the deputy Führer to Hitler. After his capture, Hess was kept at Spandau Prison in West Berlin with other high-ranking Nazi war criminals. By the mid-80s, he was the only one remaining there. And he had become a sort of martyr figure to neo-Nazis all over the world. Clark was obsessed with him, too, and literally got on the phone and somehow called into Spandau Prison. I'll never forget. Wait, what? And, like, tried to talk to Rudolf Hess? Yes, he got all the way into the prison. Like, and we were drinking, and, we, and everyone started laughing like a prank phone call, but it wasn't a prank phone call. It really happened. <laughs> like, can you imagine this man from Nazi Germany that killed Jews and did this? Like, I knew it was wrong. More than one cash member told us about the call to Rudolf Hess. It's become part of their folklore, a story they still tell with a laugh. But I find it strange and disturbing. When I spoke to Chrissy, I could never get clarity on what she thought she was really involved in. I mean, she had a swastika tattoo. The movement Clark had brought her into believes in genocide. But to this day, Chrissy calls cash just a gang. To Clark, Cash was never just a gang. He made the connections to Nazis real. They were the direct forefathers of the wayward, shaved-headed teenagers he was busy gathering in a city thousands of miles away. This is so weird. I'm so glad I never never heard anybody... Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so... No one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. Before we go any further, this part of the show will contain graphic and detailed descriptions of violence, as well as the unbleeped use of racial slurs. On a November morning in 1987, 
Residents of a northwest corner of Chicago woke up to find shattered glass and swastikas slicing like a gash through their neighborhoods. In a pocket of the city where Asians, South Asians, Arabs, and Jews more or less coexisted peaceably, it was deeply unsettling. Overnight, vandals had hit roughly a dozen institutions, mostly Jewish. I remember the incident very well. Rabbi Leonard Matanki was a member of a Jewish synagogue that had several windows broken and two swastikas painted on it. The financial cost of damage was minimal. The emotional damage was significant. Because if you recall, this took place on Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. In Nazi Germany, on the night of November 9th in 1938, Hundreds of synagogues were destroyed. Thousands of Jewish businesses had their windows smashed. Jewish homes were ransacked, and Jewish cemeteries were desecrated. Up to 30,000 Jews were rounded up and shipped to concentration camps. Kristallnacht is now viewed as the beginning of the Holocaust, when Nazi Germany shifted from policies of discrimination against Jews to what became the mass murder of six million people. This reenactment in Chicago fell on the 49th anniversary. And all of a sudden, on a Kristallnacht in modern times in America, what was referred to in Yiddish as the golden country, that we should have synagogues' windows broken again, was, was frightful. Rabbi Matanki remembers driving by the synagogue to see the extent of the damage. The broken windows were much less jarring than the swastikas. Seeing a swastika in a Jewish institution is the ultimate defilement. And so you see it, you just, it's hard to look at it. And it's so very painful. We've had as many as 20 men working on this situation. Uh, we've canvassed the areas that they've occurred in. Chicago police reassured an alarmed public that the case was a priority, and the mayor, Chicago's first black mayor, signaled the same. He toured the synagogues and the stores. Police sounded confident in the beginning that they'd get to the bottom of it. Uh, There has been one arrest. That individual was charged with felony damage to property. We do have other leads, and hopefully we will be making other arrests. The story had a, a huge picture windows. The whole front was windows, and they were smashed. Windows are broken and swastikas painted. Stephen Hopfall's father owned an old-style kosher meat market that had been hit. Catch your name, Hopfall on the Vin Kosher Meat Market. That was the store that the suspect had confessed to damaging. But the case ended up being much smaller than many expected it would be. Well, one of the things that emerged out of it was, of all the places hit, there were only two or three that were willing to press charges because they were scared of retaliation. And my dad was one of the ones that pressed charges. From his point of view, he had, although he was in the Pacific, uh, he had fought them before and was not going to let his guard down and let it happen again. The person police arrested was a 22-year-old neo-Nazi skinhead named William Leinberger. He was a member of CASH. Despite authorities' belief that others were involved, Leinberger was the sole person charged and convicted for the Kristallnacht reenactment. Clark Martell was not implicated in the Kristallnacht reenactment, 
but he was in police and prosecutors' crosshairs for other reasons. As part of the Kristallnacht case, a witness was able to point law enforcement towards another crime where they had a strong chance of putting Clark behind bars. It was a crime that involved Amy Strickland. It had happened months earlier, on the night of April 11, 1987. Amy was at her apartment with her roommate and a friend. Our doorbell rang. Amy's friend went to answer the door. The next thing Amy knew, Clark and several cash members were storming into her apartment. And I knew that they were going to hurt me right at that point. Amy knew it because by then she'd left cash, she'd gotten a new apartment away from the crew, and was associating with anti-racist skinheads again. And she was dating a black skinhead. A few weeks before Cash rushed into her apartment, Clark had cornered her in an alley behind a nightclub. And Clark was, like, trying to talk to me. Why are you hanging out with niggers? Why are you, you know, betraying your race? Like, I thought you were better than that. I remember feeling like they were targeting me. So when they showed up at her place, Amy ran. She ran out of her apartment to her landlord's door across the hall. None of our neighbors were home, and I was, like, pounding on the door. They dragged her back into the apartment. Amy testified there were seven cash members there. Three girls started to attack her. Two of them grabbed one of my arms. They put me down on my knees, and they sprayed mace down my throat, up my nose, and in my eyes. I think I was vomiting. And then Clark and the boys joined in. And then they were kicking me in my face with their boots. Amy's roommate, Renee, and her friend, Molly, were helpless. They were being held back and literally made to watch what was happening to me. Wow. I ran into Renee's room, and I was just freaking out. I thought they were going to kill me. And I remember Clark coming in, and I was so afraid, and he walked up to me. And I remember in that very, like, calm, assured, confidential, reasonable tone, I mean, I can just see it, looked right in my eyes and said, Amy, you know I had to do this. Like, I'm your dad, and I'm punishing you, and you know it hurts me more than you. Jesus. Yeah. over that in decades. I didn't think I would ever again. That hit me hard. It just was uh, like I was there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I felt I could feel it could it was tangible for a second, so. Amy was covered with blood. Her vision was blurring. She fled the bedroom and tried getting out a back door of the apartment but it needed a key and she didn't have it. So she ran into the bathroom and locked herself in. And I thought I could crawl out the window, but I couldn't. I just remember hearing them kick at the door and I remember a boot coming through the door. A black Doc Martin. Yeah, a Doc Martin, yeah. And that's the last thing I remember. I woke up in the ER. 
At the time, Amy made up a fake story to tell police at the hospital. She was terrified that telling the truth would lead to further retaliation from Cash. Amy never set foot back in that apartment. She says her attackers had stolen or destroyed everything she owned in there. But they also left something behind. In the living room, on the wall, there was a swastika, painted with Amy's blood. It was eight months later that police persuaded Amy to press charges. It wasn't just her testimony and the witnesses that made for a strong case against Clark. It was also the fact that cash members started turning against each other. One of the girls that had attacked Amy struck a deal with prosecutors. She testified against William Leinberger, the man convicted in the Kristallnacht case. In return, she got off with just probation for what she did to Amy. Like one skinhead told me, if you put rats in a bucket and fill it with water, they'll climb over each other to get out. Amy's case went to trial in 1989, two years after she was attacked. By then, she had moved to California to get away from what happened and the people who did it. I, I was just terrified to face these people again. Terrified. But Amy agreed to come back to Chicago to testify against Clark. I couldn't look at him, but I could feel his eyes boring through me. I know it sounds like such a cliche. You hear people say that, but oh my gosh. I mean, I can still see it. Like I had to just avert my eyes, you know, um, and I could, I could feel his eyes on me. Clark was found guilty of robbery, home invasion, and aggravated battery. But he was only sentenced to time in prison on the home invasion charge, 11 years. I remember being disappointed in the sentence. Felt like it was not enough time. And in the end, he only served three years. His sentence was reduced on appeal, and he was released early on parole. Five others who'd been in on the attack got varying lesser penalties. Amy lived with the consequences of that night much longer than her attackers did. I had post-traumatic stress disorder for years. I couldn't sleep. I remember laying in bed and every noise was them coming for me again. It was horrible. To this day, Chrissy is thankful she wasn't with Cash the night they attacked Amy. She says after that, everyone kind of drifted apart. That was it for us. Clark was gone and it was over. Chrissy moved on. She moved back to the suburbs and went to beauty school. She still had rough years ahead of her as a young adult, but she says she's sworn off white supremacy. What was I hating people for? What was I hating? Why was I a skinhead? Why, you know? Cash kind of had this moment of implosion. Clark went to prison. There were people charged for the Kristallnacht anniversary attacks. There was an attack on a girl who was a skinhead, and everybody dispersed. Like, people were running from the cops. They didn't want to go to jail, or they were in jail, or they were doing grand jury testimonies. All of this happened just a few months after Clark recruited Christian Picciolini in Blue Island, near the intersection of Union and Division. So the... The core of the Chicago area skinheads, America's very first neo-Nazi skinhead group that was born on the southwest side of Chicago, everybody was gone. 
But Christian was still left. And even if this chapter in Cash's history was over, neo-Nazi skinheads across the U.S. were about to have their big moment. Have you seen the Oprah Winfrey show? The uh, notorious one with uh, that Clark called into from jail? Yeah, that one. <laughs> we'll talk to jail skinhead leader Clark Mattel when we come back. Next time on Motive, neo-Nazi skinheads gain a national platform and become the foot soldiers of America's white supremacy movement. Well, it got the, got the word out of what we're talking about and that we weren't embarrassed to talk about it. And it got it out all over the country. I was able to get through to people. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find these things. It helps other people find the show. I'm Odette Youssef. The producer is Colin McNulty. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Our intern is Hannah Boomershine. Joe Dassault mixed the show. Original music by Stephen Jackson and Jesse Dukes. Thanks to the Illinois Holocaust Museum for archival assistance and to listeners whose financial support of WBEZ made this podcast possible.